Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Yes, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes, but let's start with Matthew chapter 5. When you read the account of the Lord Jesus, you find over and over and more intensively as he moves through his ministry that the people were amazed by his teaching. And their amazement came from two sources. They were amazed by the content of his teaching and they were amazed by the authority of his teaching. One of the things that Jesus could do and Jesus alone is to say something like this. You have heard it said, meaning you've heard what the Bible says, but I say to you, the only person who can say anything after scripture with the word but or and is Jesus. In Matthew 5, he does one of those. You've heard it said, but I want to instruct you even further. Being God, very God, being the one who wrote the Old Testament, being the one who God breathed every word of the Old Testament, he could indeed inscripturate what he said. Matthew 5, look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's right out of the 10 words of Moses. Sure, they'd heard that. Sure, that was scripture. Sure, that was absolutely authoritative. But I say to you, one might expect that Jesus would say, well, that was too high a standard. I'm gonna soften it up. I'm gonna give lots of grace. But listen to what Jesus says. You've heard it said that the scriptures literally say, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her In his heart. Then comes that very familiar illustration. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. There's much we could say about this passage, but let me just say from the beginning that what Jesus is isolating is that sexual purity, the purity of the intimacy of our um, uh, sexual desires is so important that literally heaven and hell are at stake with how we deal with this subject. It's not lightweight. It's serious. The issue of lust, the issue of um, sexual experiences outside of God's ordained marriage is so serious that Jesus says, deal with it radically with two illustrations, but the eye and the hand. We've talked about this over and over. It's a ridiculous illustration at one level. If you pluck your eye out, that's enough. It's not gonna work anymore. But he says, pluck your eye out and do what? Throw it from you. If your hand makes you stumble, cut it off. If that's not enough, it's rendered useless. He says, throw it from you. In other words, go to radical extremes to make sure that you're holy and pure. That's the illustration he gives right after the admonition not to have lust in your heart. In fact, he says, to commit adultery in the heart is equally as culpable to God as the act itself. Now, don't let that trick you into saying, well, then I might as well do the act. That's not what he's saying at all because then it involves the sin with another person. It compounds the sin. It has multiple dominoes that flip over after that. What he is saying, though, is that what happens in the mind is serious 
and significant. On July 20th, 19, excuse me, July 20th, 1993, Donald Wyman was clearing land, you may have heard of this, near uh, Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. He worked for a mining company. In the process, a tree rolled over, crushing his shin, causing a severe break, pinning him to the ground. For hours, he cried for help. Nobody came, nobody heard him. He concluded that the only way to save his life would be to cut off his leg. So, he made a tourniquet out of a shoestring, tightened it just above his knee with a wrench, took his pocket knife out, cut through the skin, tore through the muscle, snapped the bone just below the knee, and freed himself from the fallen tree. He crawled 30 yards to a bulldozer, drove a quarter mile to his truck, then maneuvered the standard shift transmission with his good leg and hand until he reached the farmer's house a mile and a half away. With his leg bleeding profusely, a farmer named John Huber helped him to get to the hospital where his life was barely spared. In other words, he wanted to live so much, he left his leg in the woods. He had such an intense desire to live that nothing, nothing could cause him to be denied life. Brings up the issue that Solomon introduces to us tonight. Are we serious about doing battle with temptation? Sexual temptation here. Jesus appeals to that same urge to live here in Matthew 5. Are you willing to cut your, your uh, hand off? Are you willing to pluck your eye out in order to be holy and pure? With that as a backdrop, I want to land back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. As you know, we're uh, slowing down in chapter 2. We'll speed up when we get outside of this experiment down in verses uh, 12 and following. Solomon is trying a series of experiments. He had unlimited power. He had unhindered uh, freedom. He had unlimited resources to try to do anything and everything he wanted. Imagine this. He could have done, he could have bought anything and everything he wanted. It's incredible. So, with his wisdom that God gave to him, 1 Kings 3 and 4 talks about this. With his wisdom, he applies his wisdom to this experiment. This experiment is with pleasure. He tries six pleasures that are all exactly applicable to what we we continue to try today to bring satisfaction. As we know, he ends and concludes this experiment by saying it's all, here's the Hebrew word we've learned, Hebel or Hevel, it's, it's vanity, it's transitory, it's there for a moment gone. We keep saying it's like steam off a cup of coffee. It's real, you can see it, you can observe it, but it doesn't last very long. We've said over and over, over and over, it's like juicy fruit, right? It tastes good for a little bit, but eventually the, what, the, the taste wears off. He's trying these, these, uh, these pleasures and over and over and over, it, it just doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. So his conclusion that we keep giving before the actual experiment is down in verse 10. All that my eyes desired them, I did not refuse them. Who can say that? I did and tried everything I wanted. His, his bucket list was done. He tried it all. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased with all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And guess what? Behold, all was vanity. Striving after the wind, there was no profit 
under the sun. So he tries these experiments. We've already looked at a few of them. Now we're going to dial in with one that's in a tiny little phrase here in verse 8. He says, I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces. That was um, his experiment with uh, uh, materialism. We already looked at that. Then he says, I provided for myself male and female singers. We've already looked at that. That was entertainment. And then this little phrase, and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Many concubines. I want to give you um, Solomon's five conclusions about all we can conclude is illicit sex, unbiblical, ungodly sexual intimacy. Just five quick observations, then I want to turn our attention to some solutions for that. Very simple. Five conclusions about ungodly or illicit sexual experience. The first is this. Ungodly sex has a selfish orientation. Ungodly, unbiblical sex has a selfish orientation. Look at what he says there. I provided for myself. It's a phrase he continually repeats throughout this experiment and it's showing the, showing the selfish nature of his pursuit. What he was doing was not to serve a wife. It wasn't to serve a woman. I provided for myself. It was selfish in orientation and any kind of sexual pursuit or sexual experience that is selfishly oriented is, by definition, ungodly. We won't take the time to look at it now, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7 goes to great lengths to say that, uh, that intimacy between a married couple is a gift of God, but it's given for the pleasure and the service of you for your spouse, not vice versa. It's not selfish. Solomon turned that backwards. He said, no, I'm doing this for myself. He admits it. I don't even need to go into uh, selfish fixations and orientations with pornography or the internet or or anything that, that doesn't involve serving your spouse in this manner. But it's selfish, and therefore, it's out of God's bounds. Number two, ungodly sex, according to Solomon here, has a deceptive reputation. A deceptive reputation. Where do we get that? It's in the little phrase, the, phrase, the pleasures of men, as if this is some great secret. He's obviously talking about... Um, uh, a sexual experience and talking about it being something that's particular to, to uh, uh, men and their drive for, for this uh, pleasure. But it's deceptive because it didn't bring, according to chapter uh, 2, verse 11, it didn't bring the um, satisfaction that he hoped. Number three, and this is where we need to answer some questions. Ungodly sex has an insatiable appetite. Ungodly sex has an insatiable and unsatisfied appetite. He says, I provided for myself many ple- uh, uh, the pleasures of men. Then here it is. Many concubines. Many concubines. Now we have to talk about concubines for a moment. What is a concubine? Well, it's, um, it's a, a woman who is given in the ancient Near East some uh, cultures still do this today, for um, an inheritance to create uh, uh, progeny, to create uh, 
uh, children. In this day, it was typically used for war treaties. We talked about this before, where you would give uh, some of the daughters of Israel to Egypt. The Pharaoh would give some of his daughters to you. The Pharaoh and the king of Israel um, in this situation would um, uh, have these concubines. They would have children with them. And then you would ensure not attacking each other because you now were related. You had cousins up there. You had cousins down there. He had many concubines. Now, the practice of concubinage, as it's called, was widespread in the biblical world. It was widespread in Mesopotamia. The husband was free to have sexual relations with his slaves. In Assyria, the husband was to take several freeborn concubines as well as a veiled wife, one who was special. Um, They were all under his authority. His sons were entitled to share their inheritance that he had with these concubines. And it's a difficult subject to, uh, to address because Sarah provided a concubine for Abraham. Remember that? In Genesis 16, 2 and 3. And handmaidens given to marriage uh, as a marriage gift to Leah and Rachel became Jacob's, with Leah and Rachel, became Jacob's concubines in Genesis 29. Zilpah in Genesis 29, 29. These concubines were protected under Mosaic law. They were regulated and protected in Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. Although they were distinguished from wives, interestingly, in Judges chapter 8, verse 31. 2 Samuel 5 talks about this as well. King Solomon here goes to excessive reaches. He says many concubines, a lot of them. How many? Does anyone remember? 300. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, do the math, that's a thousand women. I went to Tennessee. So 365 days, let's just round it off. You can go about three years with a different woman every day. So to say that if anyone understood that the grass was greener somewhere else, he, he did. And yet his conclusion is it didn't bring lasting satisfaction. David had concubines, his father. He learned it um, honestly from his father. Um, remember that Solomon wasn't even the one who should have been in line for the throne. Right? He was number eight. There were older brothers that he had ahead of him with other wives that were not uh, uh, Bathsheba. All to say this happened. However, in Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen, we can talk a lot about what were concubines, um, uh, good idea, bad idea, biblical, unbiblical. We can talk about that. But one thing we know, Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. The king of Israel was to not multiply wives, literally multiply women. Very interesting. What I find also interesting is that Solomon, when he's teaching Rehoboam how to be the, uh, the, um, the king one day in, in Proverbs chapter 5, he says, drink water from your own cistern. We'll look at this in a minute. Cistern there is singular. He's talking euphemistically about uh, uh, sexual pleasure only being for between you and your spouse. He says, drink water from your own cistern, singular, not plural. This is a man who had a thousand women in his life telling his son, have one. Something very instructive about that. Yes, concubinage was um, uh, a regulated issue in the Old Testament. But we do find out some things from the order of creation and from the New Testament that would move against that kind of thinking of having more than one spouse or more than one wife or husband or concubine. First of all, the order of creation. God created Adam and Eve. 
He didn't create Adam and Eve and Stacy and Angela and Pam. He, Adam and Eve, very simple. Also, when Jesus speaks of marriage in the New Testament, it's always singular. It's always with a husband and wife. When Paul regulates marriage in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians, it's with one spouse. So there may have been some social and benevolent reasons for concubinage in the Old Testament that were regulated according to Exodus. But it's clear by the time you get to the New Testament that the Lord himself talks very specifically about one man and one woman for life. Even with an elder, he's to be a one-woman man, have one woman in his life. Proverbs 31, by the way, looks to be a monogamous relationship as well. And that was written by Lemuel, not Solomon. The last two chapters, as you know, of Proverbs uh, were written by um, Agur and Lemuel. And I think it's interesting that on the great virtue, uh, the great description of the virtuous woman, singular, God didn't allow Solomon to write that one. That was a different man. That was Lemuel. For leaders, Deuteronomy 17, it's very clear. You should not multiply. And Jesus, again, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, affirms monogamy. We won't spend any more time about that. The bottom line here is that Solomon had all of these women that he was trying to bring satisfaction in an intimate fashion to himself. And he says it didn't. He says it didn't. I I, I don't want to be too... Um, uh, revealing here with counseling situations, but over the years, over decades in counseling, over and over and over, couple after couple after couple, men and women alike who have fallen into um, a relationship that was uh, involved in intimacy outside of marriage, even a divorce, even a remarriage, I have never heard anyone say that the grass truly was greener somewhere else. God intends for a sexual union to be enjoyed by a man and a woman. Now, let me say this. This is for another sermon, but let's just say this. You need to know this. Sex was and is God's idea and God's invention. He doesn't blush about this. We do. We don't even like to talk about this. I think the enemy does a good job of... Telling the church don't talk about these things when the Bible has much to say about sexual fidelity. God invented it. When my wife and I were in our premarital, we got toward the end and we we had that talk that you typically have with your premarital couple. And I remember uh, the guy who was um, uh, talking to us about it. He said, just think, on on your honeymoon night, the Lord Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the angels are there with you applauding his glory and this, this gift. <laughs> and I know that's true. And I'm glad that's true. It just wasn't the image I really wanted at that, at that moment. Song of Solomon entirely exonerates, encourages that kind of pleasure that God has given. I like to tell our, our, our young people that sex is God's wedding gift. And he doesn't like it opened early. He doesn't like it violated afterwards. It's his idea. Solomon found out, though, that it has an insatiable appetite. Uh, it doesn't satisfy. Not one, not two, not 300, not 1,000. Number four. 
Ungodly sex has a dissatisfying experience. Ungodly sex has a dissatisfying experience. We find that out by what we looked at earlier in verse 11. He says it all was vanity. He had a thousand women in his life and it didn't bring him the satisfaction that he was hoping it would. It was a dissatisfying experience. Said another way, it didn't bring him satisfaction. And then we've looked at this earlier in the background of Solomon, but I want to look at it just again from this perspective. Number five, and very quickly, ungodly sex has a disastrous outcome. Look back for a moment into 1 Kings chapter 11. Ungodly sex has a disastrous outcome. In 1 Kings chapter 11, you remember this is the last chapter that we find of King Solomon's life, but I want you to look at that from the perspective of, of uh, this uh, illicit pursuit of pleasure outside of God's design. Remember, he had these trade agreements, these alliances with, with these um, different nations we'll see here in a moment with trading women so you could create cousins. 1 Kings 11, verse one. Now, King Solomon, here it is, loved many foreign women. Wow. You should mark that in your mind. I don't know that you should underline it in your Bible. <laughs> he loved many foreign women. Then he gets specific. With the daughter of Pharaoh, there's Egypt, the Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. That's even worse because these are, the, these are the specific nations that God said don't associate with them. These were just a few miles, 30 miles from him. Specifically, this is what, what the, the narrator tells us, verse 2. From the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Why? Why, God, would you tell us that? What if she's pretty? What if she has a nice personality? What if she comes from a lovely family? For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Don't miss this next statement. Solomon held fast, hold on tight, held on tightly to these women, how? In love. I know we got... A lot of singles, I can see you guys around. I just want to tell you, you need to understand. Hear me say it, hear me plead with you. Please hear me jump up and down on the stage and tell you that the person you choose to be romantically involved with will be the one who has the greatest spiritual influence on your life. Choose wisely. Solomon failed. Oh, it gets worse. He had 700 wives. And princes. And he had 300 concubines. Look at that, that last phrase. And his wives turned his heart, what does it say? Away. Away from what? Away from God. For when Solomon was old and his wives had turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. It involved, these, these gods involved uh, sacrifices of children. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Stop right there. Solomon's pursuit of these women, which we find out in Ecclesiastes, had illicit pleasure attached to them. 
Solomon's pursuit of this was evil in God's sight. Not negotiable, not kind of bad, not best. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not follow the Lord fully as, his, as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for uh, for um, Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. And for Moloch, that's the worst of all, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. I mean, you just keep going. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. Appeared to him twice. And then he promises that his, gonna, his kingdom is going to come to a ruin. That has disastrous consequences. Disastrous consequences. Sometime, and I debated on whether even to follow up this sermon next time with, with, a, with another sermon on this. I, I'd love to talk to you about the consequences of, of this kind of pursuit. You can always tell a young couple when they're, they're going places that they shouldn't physically because things happen. They start getting less involved in church. Uh, they start pushing people away. They start getting more involved with, with each other. Jealousy rises up. There's all sorts of problems that associate themselves that are flashing warning signs that the relationship is leaking on purity. It's not going the way that, that the Lord wants it to go. It has a disastrous outcome. Now, just for a moment, I want, to turn, I want you to turn over to what Solomon himself said in Proverbs 5. I would love for us to study this whole, whole chapter. I think that this chapter, probably more than any other chapter, is the most uh, helpful because it deals with what to flee from and what to pursue in terms of sexual pleasure. He starts out by telling his, uh, his son, you know, listen to me. Um, talks about the adulterous woman. It could be the adulterous man too. Don't take gender too far here. Those first uh, uh, 14 verses, he talks about what will happen if you fall. It's almost like he, he says, I want you to imagine what it would be like for you to fall into sexual tragedy. And once you see that play out in your mind, let that only be a tape that you ran in your mind. Let it never happen. Don't go there. He plays out what it would be like. But then on the positive side, he doesn't just say run from the wrong woman, run from the wrong guy. This is what he says. Now, this is makes some people blush, but it's important. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. He's talking uh, uh, um, uh, by analogy about intimacy. Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, does it really say this? Let her breast satisfy you all, at all times. Be exhilarated always with her body. Love. What does it say there? Love, not body. This is interesting. When he says, let her breast satisfy you, he's talking about, obviously, intimacy there. He's saying that within marriage, that's where that kind of um, enjoyment should take place, and only there. But he goes to great lengths to say at the end, be exhilarated always with her love, not with the act of intimacy. Relationship with your wife or with your husband is so much more than what you do in that bedroom. 
It's so much richer, so much deeper. Are you exhilarated always with her love? Exhilarated is an interesting uh, word. It means literally drunk, intoxicated, overwhelmed, just ecstatic about it, about her love. When, <clears throat> I may have told you guys this before, but I, I want to tell you again because it's such a rich illustration in my own life. When Kim and I, we hadn't been married very long, just a few years, and we, um, we had kind of a strict budget and we held money back for date nights and Someone had told us about this steakhouse called Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. How many of you have had a Ruth's Chris steak? Yeah, it's, uh, all of you who are raising your hands are smiling right now. And I think it just left Kansas City, but I heard it's coming back. When it does, let me know. We were on a tight little budget, and this was like $30 for a steak before you get the mashed potatoes. You gotta pay extra for that. And the salad and everything else, it was... This was way. So we saved our money and our nickels and dimes forever so we could go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse for our anniversary. So we saved and saved and saved on this little youth pastor's budget. And finally, I got to take her to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Now, I'll be honest with you. In my heart, I was thinking, $30 for a steak? I mean, I've, I've killed a lot of critters and I've carved them up and eaten them. And that's a lot of money to pay for, for a piece of meat. It just can't be that good. Until they brought that plate out. It's a 500 degree plate with that meat on it and they put butter on top and it's sizzling. And they put that piece right down in front of me and I, I took a bite and I thought, you know what? There is such a thing as a $30 steak <laughs> and it's right in front of me right now. And I ate this thing. You know, this is our anniversary and neither of us are talking. We didn't even look at each other. We were just right down to this piece of meat. It was incredible. We had some, you know, some uh, sweet potato casserole with it and a Caesar salad, some, some wonderful sourdough bread. We had a great time. And then it came time for, the, for dessert. The waitress brought out the big platter that shows you what you can have for dessert, Right? And she shows us these desserts, and right there is flourless chocolate cake. My wife loves chocolate. She, she once a day hooks an IV of Hershey syrup up just to get a fix. She loves chocolate. So they had chocolate there for her, and they had creme brulee and then the apple pie. They had some things I liked. This is the thing, though. This is our anniversary. We had saved money. We could have afforded it. This was going to be good. And I said, honey, you want any, uh, any dessert? And she says, she's not do you? And I said, no, do you, do you, do you, do you? The waiter's going, okay, somebody needs to make a decision here. I said, no, I don't really want. She said, I don't either. Here's the deal. There was something we loved and wanted on that dessert plate. But because we had been entirely satisfied by the meal, dessert wasn't tempting. I think what Solomon's saying here to his son is drink water from your own cistern. The best most uh, a sure safeguard for against sexual immorality is a healthy biblical relationship of intimacy inside marriage. God invented it. He doesn't blush at it. He, in the, in the eons uh, before time, he said, I'm gonna, this is the way that I'm gonna bring children into the world. This is how I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this happen. It's going to be a gift 
So before we go, I want to give you a strange list, okay? I want to give you a list how to guarantee sexual failure in your life, okay? We're going to come at it from the back, from the back angle. How to guarantee sexual failure in your life. I'll have, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11 here. Number one, forget the horror of sin and its results. Just forget the horror of sin and its results. Think of it as not a big deal. Just forget that it can cause uh, pain and heartache. Forget that unfaithfulness will hurt you and hurt your, your spouse or hurt your future. Just forget that. Second Samuel 12, 7 to 10, David forgot the horror and Nathan finally says, no, you're the man. And instantly his whole world collapsed. Just forget the horror of sin and you can rest assured you're on your way to sexual immorality. Number two, avoid accountability and seek personal privacy. Avoid accountability and seek personal privacy. Um, Few people get into trouble in public. Also with privacy, uh, my wife and I have an agreement. Uh, we have each other's passwords for everything. I don't have an email account that she doesn't uh, have access to. Uh, She she can look at my texts anytime she wants to. And if there's something on there that's ministry related, you can rest assured if it's it's confidential, I'll tell her that. And we have an agreement with that. The point is, there's nothing private between us. I don't want there to be anything private between us. I don't trust myself with that kind of privacy. Let me encourage you, please, There should be nothing private between you and your spouse. So just avoid accountability. Also, if you're single, just make sure that that no one's involved in the relationships that you're pursuing. Just tell everybody it's all okay. Number three, lose interest in Scripture. You want to fail sexually? Lose interest in Scripture. I have never counseled anyone who is struggling with with um, uh, pornography or struggling with, with being faithful to their spouse or struggling with, with um, uh, going further than they should in a dating relationship who at the same time said, you know what, Rick? I am having the most wonderful quiet times of my life right now. They don't go hand in glove. So just lose your interest in scripture and you open yourself up for that. Number four, fail to understand marriage. And what I mean by that is fail to understand that you're in it for them, not you. As a man, men, we are in our relationship solely, according to Ephesians 5, to present them holy and blameless before God. We are there to make them better because they're married to us. That's humbling, isn't it? More holy, more godly, more accountable, more in love with the church, more in love with the Savior. And remember what marriage is about. The only reason you should marry someone is you come to the conclusion and decision that you believe you can glorify God better with this person than you can single or with anyone else. Therefore, marriage is intended to make much of Jesus, to glorify God. Just forget that and you'll, you'll guarantee that you'll open yourself up for sin. Number five, compartmentalize your life. Compartmentalize your life. Now, now, what I mean by that is think of your life as segments. I'm certain way at church, certain way at the office, certain way at home, certain way with my friends, certain way with my acquaintances. Compartmentalize your life. Rather than being the same person all the time in every context, a person who knows and loves Jesus. 
Number six, and this is particularly to the ladies. Pay more attention to external beauty than internal. Pay more attention to external beauty than internal. Now, typically for the guys, it's pay more attention to external beauty than internal. You hear the difference there? In other words, one is creating that on the outside, one is looking for it on the outside. What are you attracted to? I, just, I don't want to go too far here. Listen, when I, I remember sitting in a junior high staff meeting at Grace Community Church, and this girl walked in, and it was, her name was Kim, and time stopped. And I didn't hear anything. I didn't, she, and I just remember her, she, her hair just kind of floated with the wind, <laughs> and she sat down, and I just, wow, I hope she's godly. And so, you should be physically attracted to your spouse. That's great. But don't pay more attention to the external beauty than the internal. Uh, Peter says that the, a godly woman pays attention to the, uh, um, the progress of her inner beauty. Number seven, become a flirt. Emotionally, physically, become a flirt. Said another way, become immodest. Become immodest. This is typically to the, to the, to the ladies. Uh, um, don't. There's a reason we call some parts private parts. Keep them private. Guys, be careful being attracted to someone who is immodest. And, and that, that's a way of flirting. Um, you know, I, this, this is a terrible thing to, to think about or say, but I've, I've often wondered what would happen. I don't think that I have the courage to say I would want to do this, but I've often wondered if a woman dressed immodestly and a man walked up and made a comment about those parts of her body that she's accenting with her immodesty, what, how that would go. And if she said, I can't believe you would say that, he could easily say, well, isn't that what you want me to think? Just be careful. Dads, 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 are you looking at your girls before they go out? I'm, as a father of sons, can I beg you? Can I beg you? Look at your daughters. I remember the first time I dropped Luke off at a, uh, a public high school, he was at Hart High School in, in um, Los Angeles. It was about 107 that day in August. And I dropped him off and I was watching the girls walk across the street. And I drove off weeping, saying, God, protect my boy. Protect him. But the issue isn't to take him out of the world, it's to teach him to be a man who controls his eyes in the world. Because the problem wasn't with those girls as much as it was, is always in your own heart. Become a flirt emotionally, physically, be immodest. Number eight, again, this is the negative we're talking about how to guarantee sexual failure. Number eight, forget the self denial of the gospel. Forget the self denial of the gospel. You do understand that you have some desires that should only be fulfilled in biblical ways. And to fulfill them in unbiblical ways is, is a sin against God. It, want, it produces, um, uh, it's not good for us and it produces an anti-reflection on his glory. The gospel means you're gonna have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You're gonna have to say no to desires that, that feel so right but are so wrong. Self-denial is part of the gospel. Number nine, 
Fill your mind with sexual material. Fill your mind with sexual material and see how that works out in your desires. We don't have to have much to feed our desires for romance and for an experience outside of God's context of marriage. Don't be entertained by things for which your Savior died. This is so easy to rationalize and people typically rationalize that by saying, well, it doesn't bother me. Well, Jesus died for it, so it bothers him. Don't fill your mind with sexually explicit material. Number 10, tell yourself you can handle it. Tell yourself you can handle the temptation. Oh, we can be alone in this car. We can be alone in this apartment. We can handle it. We, I, can, I can take this lady here from work. I can do this with this man there. I can do, tell yourself that it's not a big deal. Tell yourself you can handle it. That'll guarantee that you're on the path to failure. And number 11, most importantly, you can forget all of them, and this is the one that will guarantee that you're on the wrong road. Ignore God's omniscience and omnipresence. Just ignore it. That's what every person, when they're pursuing sexual or intimacy issues outside of marriage ultimately has to do. You have to get into a place in your mind where you stiff arm God's omnipresence and omniscience away, but does that really work? What does Psalm 139 say? Darkness and light are alike to you. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from you? The answer David gives is nowhere. And then he, he's kind of funny. He says, what if I went to the bottom of the ocean? He says, no, he's there. What if I went to the, the farthest reaches of the stars? Guess what? He's there too. The point of Psalm 139 is everywhere you are, he is. You can never find a place where God is not. And yet, A.W. Tozer says, in the moment of sin, every man is at least a practical atheist. Meaning you may say you believe in God, but you're acting like he doesn't exist. That's how you can guarantee failure in your life. I've made it kind of a, a bit of a pursuit. Kim and I have talked about this for years on um, the study of a fool in the book of Proverbs. When you study the fool in Proverbs, it really boils down to two issues. A fool is ruled by fears and desires. Fears and desires. In other words, he's ruled by fears. I'm afraid if I don't sin that I'm gonna miss out. That's the fear. I'm afraid if I don't sin in this way, I'm gonna miss out on something good. Couple that with a sinful desire and you have a recipe for foolishness. Like a dog who returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly, Proverbs 26, 11 says. So what is your strategy for fighting against sexual sin? And what is your strategy for pursuing it? Now here's the good news. Because I, I know it, I feel it, I sense it, I see it on some faces. Some of you are saying, oh man, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know what I'm thinking. Do you know that we have a God whose grace is greater than our sin? He, if you know the lyric, say it with me. He breaks the power of 
canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood, do you know the word? What is it? How's it go, Aaron? His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood avails for me. Do you believe that? Here's the best news. I, this is, I, I love this part of, 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 of a sermon like this because you, everybody feels like, ugh, Oh, God's so heavy. This is so bad. I've ruined things either in mind or deed so many times. And God says, yeah, I can forgive that. I forgive him far more than that. What a God we have who gives grace. You cannot out-sin his grace. And I love that line. He breaks the power of canceled sin. In other words, the sin he's forgiven, he can break the power of that ruling in our lives. I want, I want so bad for us to be a, a community of believers here <clears throat> at Mission Road who are pursuing sexual purity. Yeah. But even more than that, a community of pe- people who swim in God's grace. Who have the ability to say with the song and with the verse, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, now I dread Jesus and all, let's just stop right there, Jesus and all, all of who he is, his life, death, burial, resurrection, in him is mine. So don't, sermons like this are easy to get people riled up and you feel bad because we all have impure hearts and unclean um, souls. I get that. We have a God who, whose business whose gospel, whose good news is to forgive those kind of things. But when he forgives it, there's an expectation that we're gonna pursue being holy and righteous. So, let me, let me uh, turn the screw just a little bit tighter, okay? If this is an area that you're finding struggle with, I can promise you that the enemy of your soul is pleading with you in your heart right now, don't tell anyone. You can fix this yourself. My answer to you is, how's that worked out for you so far? That's why we have care groups. That's why we have accountability. And by the way, if someone unburdens their heart with you, they should find in you, remember Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. They should find in you good, godly counsel and grace. But they also should find, a, for me, it's about a size of eight or eight and a half. I'm gonna hold you accountable. I'm gonna ask you questions that are hard. Ask questions that can only be answered by yes or no. One thing I learned being a college pastor for a long time is if you have a couple who are dating, don't ask this question. How's your purity because this is typically the answer. Ah, oh, it's okay, struggling a little bit, but oh yeah, it's okay. Ask questions that can only be answered with yes or no. Have you touched, have you sat in this car? Will you, are you ever, ask questions where they go, oh, how did you know? And if they say no, praise God. That's accountability. But then when you get that answer, say, that's great. Let's study. Let's pray. Let's talk. Let's get together. Let's ask questions. Let's make sure that we're helping each other along. And those of you who are single, let me just say this. I want, I want another hour, but we'll stop right here. 
If you're in the biblical word, if you're burning, if you want to do what only married people can do, I say this as gently as I can. Get married. Fast. Faster than, than to wait. Your parents, those of your parents, I'm, I'm not going to get in your kitchen and parent your kids, but let me just tell you, after having been a college pastor to thousands of students watching this issue develop, I think you're way, way better to see a marriage early that struggles financially than a marriage later that struggles morally. So I had a couple tell me one time, you wouldn't believe this. He said, well, I want to I wanna buy a home before we get married. I said, oh, that's, that's ambitious. You know, you get a mortgage. He says, no, I don't want a mortgage. I want to buy the home. I said, excuse me, you mean, you mean purchase outright the home where there's no mortgage, no payment? Yeah, that's what I want to do. I said, dude, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> that was about as good a, good a biblical counsel as I could find. You're crazy. You're never, stop dating this girl. You're going this sweet girl, she's just like, I just love him. I just want to marry him. You know, in the next millennium, maybe. <laughs> Let's talk about these issues. Because I'm convinced if we don't, we lose. These are hard things to talk about, but they're biblical things to talk about. Father, open our eyes to our relationship with Jesus Christ because he, as our Lord, as our Savior, governs even our affections, even these temptations, even these desires. And Lord Jesus, what you said about us being radical with our amputation of sin in the heart causes us to bear one another's burdens, to care for one another, to guard each other's hearts, You've said so clearly that sin in the heart is as offensive to you as sin as if we'd sinned in body. Lord, we have all sinned in heart. Thank you. Thank you for grace. Grace that's greater than all our sin. Thank you for breaking the power of this sin that you've forgiven, this cancel sin, for setting us as prisoners free to remember that your blood makes us foul, wicked wretches clean. And at the cross, it did avail for us. So convict us, but encourage us. Cause us to confess and find forgiveness. I want to pray for the singles in here. Lord, help them to find godly spouses. Give them a, a husband or a wife with whom they can glorify you better than they ever could, single or with anyone else. Give us grace to see our marriages as you see them, to find greater grace, to find greater love, to find a renewed happiness with with the wives that we've married, with the husbands that we've married. We want to learn from Solomon. 
He's given us this experiment, we know, to say, don't do what I did. Lord, teach us to avoid his pitfall. We pray this because of the power that you've given us in the gospel of Jesus, your son. Amen.